0: So <clears throat> Alice's story um, is an international story and she had so many different roles, you know she's a, a writer, director, producer, editor, head of a studio, it's, it's a lot of roles to be able to um, explore in the film so people could really understand her as a person. I think it's a, it's a new day, <laughs> I think this is an exciting time actually. Um, I think there's a lot of change that's gonna happen. I think telling Alice's story is being used, uh, will be used in a positive way to inspire a younger generation to continue to take the torch and to keep going to um, inspire with more women's stories, uh, more stories like this that we don't know about in all different industries. And um, through hard work, passion, and determination, we can expose these things and make a difference, make it more of the norm.
1: You've been directing and writing for some 17 years now. When you first uh, wanted to be a director, was it a difficult thing to convince people that you could and to give you a chance?
0: Well, actually,
2: I never wanted to be a director. Mm -hmm. It was just an accident. I'd co-written the screenplay, the picture for all not wanted, and was co-producing it. And uh, our director, unfortunately, had a
0: so. But the money men said no, I had to direct the second one. And then it was like a snowball, you know, it kept on. And then Howard Hughes took over our company. And uh, he insisted I direct the first three with RKO. And that's how this ugly thing happened of me getting him back at the camera. How do you
3: feel about inadvertently perhaps being a role model for those women
0: thrilling very thrilling
3: what's thrilling about it
0: I don't know it sounds a little sounds a little self-aggrandizing but that you can factor into into their aspirations you know that I think with a a fair amount of tenacity a little bit of luck you too can can uh, embark on something that means a great deal you know it's really I think finally it's about the ideas and it's about the passion and that's what um, certainly drives me personally
3: You got five seconds to tell
0: me where you buried the loot. Oh. Where's the loot? I don't, I don't know who's got the loot. I don't know if anybody's got the loot. I'm setting up a guy.
3: Hello looters, welcome to The Movie Loot, the podcast where we share the best, greatest, most entertaining and or weirdest film loot you could find. My name is Carlo and we'll be sharing the loot today. This is episode 69, The Women's Loot, and I know that September seems like a long time ago, but in honor of the directed by women Celebration of September, we're going to be talking about female directors. That's what hurricanes and power blackouts do to your podcast schedule. But before we get into the topic of the day, let's talk a bit about our past episodes and some promos. A couple of weeks ago, we released episode 68, The Birthday Loot, where I shared my thoughts on all the films that you recommended to me as gifts for my birthday, which was in August. My great friend Ashley got back to me and said, Just finished the episode. It was great fun to listen to. Thank you for the shout-out, and glad you enjoyed the brilliance in Amour. Thanks to Ashley for supporting us. She's a great friend. My friend Stu from Stuart Order gave us a retweet saying, Love Carlos show. Check this episode out. Thanks to Stu for the love, and make sure you check out Stu World Order. It's a great podcast where Stu focuses mostly on comic book movies. Also, my friend Andres from the Latin York said, just listen to the Birthday Loot episode from my friend Carlo and the Movie Loot. Awesome episode. You need to check it out. You also need to check my latest episode where he's the Boricua guest talking about great Puerto Rican songs. So thanks a lot to Andres, and obviously he's referring to the episode I did with him where I talked not about films, but about Puerto Rican music and songs that have been important to me. So check out that episode from the Latin jukebox Andres does a great job. Before that we released our Hitchcock Loot where we had writer Tony Lee Moral talking about the master of suspense and I followed that with special episode 13 where I analyzed one scene from Psycho. So check all of that out, go to your favorite podcast streaming platform and look for the movie loot. But let's get on with our conversation about film directors and for that we have a great guest, my great Twitter friend, writer and editor Sylvie. Let's go! The Women's Loot. Hello looters, welcome to a movie loot. This is the Women's Loot, where we will talk all about their work and contributions in the field of film direction. And this is in honor of the Directed by Women celebration in September. And to talk about that, I'm really happy to be joined today by one of my favorite persons on the Twitterverse, my good friend, Sylvie. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Carlo. So great to be with you.
3: Definitely. I was really looking forward to this conversation because I always say that one of the greatest benefits of doing this podcasting thing is the chance that it gives me to talk with people that i've only known via twitter or through the internet for years so it's really it's really good to have you on the show
1: yeah it's exciting you know so often you listen to podcasts and you feel like you know the person and you know them but they don't know you <laughs> so it's, i'm excited to sort of be on for once and and you know feel like oh okay no i do know carlo now and he knows uh, actually about me so it's, it's good to see you interact with your listeners which is really it's a, that's a really great benefit of your podcast
3: now, I have a lot of fun with that. That's definitely the main thing to actually interact with people. It's not just me on a soapbox talking, and, and that's it. To get that input from people all around the world, it's it's definitely one of the one of the main reasons to do this. So Sylvie, Sylvie is a half American, half French, and all around opinionated, right? That is very
1: true in all respects.
3: <laughs> We've been been interacting for about a year and a half. And and I actually went and did a a Twitter search for our first interaction. Um, Oh. And and I think it was the first thing I found was when I tweeted a world map with all the countries from which I had seen films in 2020. And you quoted that and and shared yours. And I think that was was the first time. I think it was uh, January 2021, I think.
1: I do not think that's our first interaction. We actually had a conversation and it was about i'm not going to mention the other people involved because it was a bit of a troll-like situation (laughs) and it was about goodfellas i think was the trigger of this conversation that we neither of us started but both of us were in and it got to the question of essentially what we're going to probably touch on later which is maybe if most critics weren't men we would have a different canon of great films and we you know whatever there were other people in the conversation but i think that might have been our first okay. episode, i, I was
3: i need to dig up that conversation <laughs>
1: <laughs> i will but... send it to you but i really wouldn't want to like flag anyone involved because there was there there were some words (laughs) (laughs) words
3: there's a lot of that on on twitter exactly (laughs) but ever since uh, you've been a great person to chat with often and also a constant supporter of the show ever since so i want to thank you publicly for that that you've always been a great listener and a great contributor to the movie loot. it's a
1: great show carlo
3: thank you (laughs) i I try i try (laughs) So uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, your, your website describes you as a quote-unquote recovering East Coast academic. What yes. are you recovering from, academics <laughs> or the East Coast?
1: Uh, probably a little bit of both. I grew up in New England and wasn't intending to, but I ended up at grad school and was initially going for a master's and then ended up with a PhD and then ended up teaching, and, which I loved. I actually really loved teaching, and I, I did a lot on film as part of that and if you know anything about the academic job market, you go on the market and if you're, you know, there might be like two or three things in your specialty and there might be like, you know, seven or eight jobs that you can like reasonably apply for, but not a lot, you know, necessarily in exactly what you do. And I really wanted to move out to the West Coast. I really wanted to live in either San Francisco or the Pacific Northwest. So I had done some editing as part of my grad school experience. I had worked on a journal and I really loved it. And there was a job in textbook publishing out in San Francisco, and it paid the same horrible wages that teaching did. So I said, okay, there's no, it's, you know, it's no loss there, but it's a place I really wanna be. So I applied to this one job in publishing and got it and decided, you know, I, maybe I should just do that. So that's what I did. So I worked for a big uh, major publisher for a number of years. And then I went out on my own. I still do work for them, but I went out on my own and I've been self-employed as an editor for 10 years now. So that's what pays the bills.
3: (laughs) Which is interesting because I was going to ask you, as a freelance editor or freelance worker, uh, in a scale of 1 to 10, how stressful is it to work freelance?
1: Um, You know, I think that really depends. Like what I do... You know, my publishing job was in French and Italian. I mostly worked on French and Italian textbooks. I did work on a film textbook because that was my dissertation was on the film industry. And so I sort of managed to get that gig. But I I was working in the department that did world languages. So that's mostly what I worked on in publishing. And the great thing about that is there's not a lot of people that can edit in other languages (laughs) um, beyond Spanish. There's probably plenty of Spanish editors, but... um, I sort of knew and I like I said I still actually work for my company that I used to work for, you know, as an employee. I still do the textbook I work on when I was there, like I'm the main editor for that and you know, I know a lot of people complain about textbooks and the cost of textbooks, but I will tell you that a language textbook when I was a full-time employee, I did one a year. Like language textbooks are really complicated to do and right. so, you know, my editing work I am the lead editor on a book project that takes a year, so it's not like a you know grabbing a writing assignment here, writing assignment there, which it, it is feast or famine. Like there might be a year where there's no projects in French, but yeah. you know if I get a project, that's fine. You know I'm okay. <laughs> I can pay yeah. my rent.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's actually what I, what I was referring. To. I, I've done uh, freelance work and I worked a couple of years as a freelance instructor uh, in computers. And I always had work. There was never lack of work, but it's stressful. I mean, could I pay the rent this month or <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, it's stressful.
1: There definitely is an amount of stress and, and I'm happy that I'm in it, you know, in the first few years were difficult, but I had, you know, socked away a lot to prepare for that. And, you know, I just have some stable clients now that I really like yeah. working with. So, you know, I, and I work on really interesting stuff and it's, you know, I actually like it much better than being an in-house employee because I work on more variety. I'm editing a world history textbook now, which has been fascinating. So it's worked out very well, but, you know, <laughs> there's always yeah. next year to worry about.
3: No, yeah. <laughs> but but at what point did you decide to put your random musings on the internet?
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so I have this blog that I started in 2010. I moved to San Francisco in 2007. And I had been in grad school for a very long time. And I had a lot of debt from grad school. And I was living in San Francisco, which is not cheap. <laughs> So um, my first few years, I had this goal of being debt-free by 2010. So the first three years in San Francisco, I did nothing, Carlo. I mean, when I'm telling you, I took out an amount of money at the beginning of the month in cash, and that's what I had to spend in the month. And if the last week of the month I had no more money for food, you know, I ate whatever was in my kitchen. So I did not go to the movies. I did not go to restaurants. I did not buy anything. (laughs) I had one objective. And so in 2010, I met that objective. This is great. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, I had been paying probably more than my rent and living expenses towards my debt. So when I didn't have that anymore, I was like, oh, wow is really nice. <laughs> and so I started. I got a subscription to the opera. I started going to movies again. I was trying to get back into. You know, when you're in, when you're teaching, a lot of what, even if you're doing a lot of reading and things like that, you're doing it for work. You're not like when I was, I was teaching film in my classes. So when I watched films, it was mostly for work. And I was just trying to get back into going to the movies for fun and reading for fun and just exploring new things. And so that's why I started my blog is I just was starting to explore these things again. And I was like, you know, to sort of keep me on track and, you know, get back into the, I want to sort of be jotting my thoughts down on these things. So in the beginning, my blog, which is woefully, (laughs) I have not been writing that much on my blog and it's mostly been about film lately, but I do want to get back to it. But in the beginning it was really split between opera And books and movies were probably covered all about equally, I would say. So it was really more just like, I want to get back into this. And I, you know, I'm a big list maker and project maker. So I did, you know, I always was doing some sort of film project. Like I looked at all of Hitchcock's films. I looked at all of Spielberg's films. I did a whole series on screwballs. And I did a series on classic horror, which is not a genre I really had watched before or knew much about. And um, that's sort of how I got back into going to movies and doing stuff like that again.
3: One of the things I like about your site is that, and I mean this in, in the best way, uh, it's all over the place. There, there's, uh, <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> there's a, a little bit of everything. I mean, you, you got me seeing on, on books, on dance, on opera, on film, radio, music, television, anything. I've read some of your stuff and, and it's kind of, okay, wh- where do I go now? <laughs> w- yeah. What can I read now? Because it's a lot of, a, of you, you put a lot of effort into all of that. So I want to commend you for that. It's a great, great website.
1: Yeah, it's, it is very random. I mean, it's the name was given, like that phrase was said at the beginning, <laughs> but it turned out to really be that. And in fact, like, I don't talk about music that much, but... I do an annual roundup of music. That's pretty much all I write on music. And it's one of the most popular things. Like it's just, it's not something I do regularly, but every year I sort of post like what my favorite singles of the year were. And it's strangely popular <laughs> type of thing, but it's, it's really a blog I did for myself because I have a horrible memory, which will become really evident. I'm sure as we go along in this conversation, <laughs> but um and it's, it was really just a way to, for me to keep track of, like, if I don't write this down when I see it, I'm not going to really remember this that well. So that was sort of the impetus behind all of that.
3: You have a lot of great writings on film. And I want to use this as a segue into our our topic. And as we were planning this, you said to me, I'm quoting you, you were passionate about promoting films by women and encouraging people to see more than they have. And I think that's, uh, I I really don't remember exactly how it was that we agreed on this topic, but I think it seemed like a perfect marriage to have you on and, and talk about this.
1: I think you wanted, I think it was a year or so ago, you were like, I'm thinking about topics for next year. Like, what do people want to hear? And, you know, I had a bunch of suggestions, like Westerns, Heist, I think I suggested. More Hidden Gems. Always more Hidden Gems, Carlo, FYI. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think I said female filmmakers was one of them. And the thing is, like, my specialty is the French film industry. Well, that's what my dissertation is on. But when we sort of started talking about it, you're like, well, you know, what are you passionate about? And I was like, well, what am I passionate about? That's what I'm passionate about.
3: like that's sort of you know a mission (laughs) (laughs) let's start our women's talk so to speak and one of the things i told you when we were settling on the topics to to discuss is that i wanted to talk about the struggle of female directors to stand out in in any way in hollywood and we're going to focus on directors but this obviously doesn't apply only to directors this applies to to pretty much any job i think and i told you and i stand by this that to most regular people There's Catherine Bigelow, and that's it. Uh, If we expand to more casual film lovers, then they might know, I don't know, Amy Heckerling, uh, Penny Marshall, um, Ida Lupino, if we're pushing it. But that goes to the point that through the more than 100 years that film has been a medium, there aren't and there haven't been many female directors that stood out and, and, and reached the mainstream. And even when they were, their contributions were either dismissed, erased, or attributed to others, which is kind of what happened with Alice Guy Blachet, which I, I saw uh, the, the documentary Be Natural yesterday.
1: Yeah, it uh, was a great documentary.
3: Yeah. It, it, I'm going to use some of what I saw in that documentary as a sort of a, a springboard to some of the topics that we're going to touch. But that's one of the things that, like what happened to her, some of her contributions were uh, erased or attributed to others, and it wasn't until some people that dedicated to investigate this, uh, actually brought it to surface. So why do you think that's it?
1: Well, I mean, I just want to say one thing about Alice Guy Blaché. It's, it's sort of one thing that got me into doing this and sort of the film project I'm working on now, which is called A Century Plus, where I'm looking at all films by all directors, uh, decade by decade. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do it is when I started to explore a little bit more about film gaps I had and silent films was a huge gap for me. That's sort of when I learned about Alice Guy Blachet. Now, keep in mind, I went to NYU for my graduate school work. I took film classes with incredible film professors and I studied the French film industry. I had not heard of Alice Guy Blachet. You know, when you talk, when we learned about film pioneers, you know, we watched the Lumiere Brothers and we watched Melies films. And that's what we learned as the two key pioneers, you know, you have Melies who's doing fantasy, sci-fi, and you have the Lumiere brothers who are doing, you know, sort of documentary style. And those are the sort of two poles of the industry, you know, like sort of the art side of it, and then just the documentary news industry side of it. Yeah. And I did not learn about Alice Guy Blanchet. And that was a whole world of discovery when I, I think I saw her Consequences of Feminism is the first film I saw by her. And I'm like, I can't believe I didn't know about this person, really. It was really frustrating.
3: Well, you know. And it, the documentary opens with dozens of filmmakers and people from the industry that didn't even know who she was. So, yeah. so you shouldn't feel uh, alone in that.
1: No, it was really eye opening about just how and it it made me realize a lot of things because I think I mean, getting back to your question, which is why we don't know women filmmakers. I mean, I would say the vast majority of any audience for films does not know any filmmakers. I mean, that's the sad reality. You know, we're both on film Twitter and we know filmmakers. But, you know, I think most people aren't selecting their films based on the director. They're seeing what the plot is. They're seeing who stars in it. And, you know, that's important to them. But especially in the early days, no one knows who's directing anything because it's not on the film itself. So when she's directing, you know, you don't know that you're seeing a woman filmmaker. But you know, when I was doing my initial research on her on this project I sort of did before the Century Plus project, which I called The Great Unseen, where I was really trying to fill in gaps. And I did a little research on her. And I was like, you know, yes, she was sort of left behind and for many ways. And we can talk about that. But there were actually a lot of Female filmmakers in the silent era. You know, I think when we talk about filmmaking, even just if we restrict ourselves to Hollywood. You really have to think about when you're talking about because in the silent era there were a decent number of female filmmakers and not even just directors but just women involved in all aspects of the industry for for a variety of reasons but but one of which is they were seen to give it respectability so when you know you're in the Nickelodeon days and cinema is sort of looked on as like a you know a mass media for the great unwashed you know, having a woman as a cashier or a woman as a manager of the front of house, you know, that was giving a theater respectability. And women were in sales, you know, they were doing everything in terms of production, distribution, everything. Like there were not you know, huge barriers when it came to gender. So, you know, you have to sort of ask yourself why we don't know about these women that were a huge part of the industry. And to, take, to go back to Alice Guy Blachet, She was Léon Gaumont's secretary. She attended one of these private sessions by the Lumière brothers, the first demonstrations of the cinema, was very interested in it, was basically given permission to make films by Léon Gaumont. She still was a secretary, but she also made films. She was essentially the head of production. Now, the French, there's two major studios from the beginning of the film industry to now that still exist, Gaumont and Pathé. They controlled the world market until World War I. So these were huge yeah. studios. And she was essentially head of production yeah. at Gaumont. When Gaumont wrote his autobiography, she does not appear. Like, your head of production for 10 years doesn't appear in this story of your yeah. studio. And she leaves for the U.S. because she gets married to Herbert Blachet and becomes Alice Guy Blache, And... Blache is the one that's put in charge of the Gaumont, like they go to work for Gaumont yeah. in, in America, and he's the one all of a sudden in charge. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's all sorts of stuff like that where just their, their presence is there. But I don't think it's necessarily malicious. I think people have egos and they write the story they want to write. And, and you know, a lot of these people are forgotten. So. I think that in the early days you have a lot of opportunities that get shut down because the industry becomes more specialized, it becomes compartmentalized. Women get the vote in 1919. Yes. I don't think that helped and they just sort of fade away from the industry and the studios really become dominant and that's when you have no I mean you have almost no women in the industry from the late 20s to the 60s. You have Dorothy Arzner, and you have Ida Lupino, and that's it in terms of Hollywood directors. Yeah. And, you know, then that starts to sort of self-correct. That sort of leads to a situation where if you have 40 years of film history, where you have virtually no women making films, you have a few in Europe, you know, you have Lini Riefenstahl, you have Agnes Varda, you know, you have people that sort of emerge and make movies, but basically women aren't there. So then you have white men making films in Hollywood you have the vast majority of critics analyzing those films and deciding what's good are men. So when you start to open up to new voices in the 70s and 80s, well that's not what we're used to seeing. So it's you know it's just gonna take time. I think it's getting there. but yeah. I think people like Bigelow who work, Bigelow's a fascinating, you know, because if you really look at Bigelow's films, she's constantly questioning masculinity and yeah. and really looking at these issues. But she works all over the place genre-wise. Like, yes, she does action, but, you know, she does Strange Days, which is sci-fi. I mean, that's such an interesting film. I mean, it's not a favorite of mine, but it's, it's really an interesting film to watch. You know, she does Point Break, which is definitely action, but it's also... Like it's also a sports film and a crime film and a high, you know, it's
3: yeah, high standards.
1: it's sort of all over the map in terms of genre. And then, you know, she does war films, but war films from a certain angle, not maybe your typical battlefield camaraderie type of war films. So yes, yeah, she is working in these maybe more familiar genres to people that maybe they can latch on to her. And also, she is the first woman who won for directing, so that's why people know her name. Yeah. I mean, other people were nominated before her, so I think there's that element, too. But, you know, she's really an interesting case. I don't know if that even answers your question, Carlo.
3: No, (laughs) no. It's definitely a, a lot of insight. But I want to go back a bit to the start of cinema in the early 20th century. And there's an interviewee in that documentary in Be Natural. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's an archivist that compares the early filmmakers are like punk rockers of cinema. The rules mm-hmm. really hadn't been written yet. They were out there doing whatever they wanted to do. And to me, this is my opinion, I think maybe that explains why someone like Alice Gee or Lois Weber or other female directors that she mentions, because like you said, there are many. At one point, I think they show like a like a profile card of like a dozen or more female directors that were actively working during that time. Yeah.
1: Universal Studios in the 1910s had at least 10 women directors under contract.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's a lot yeah and maybe because the rules weren't written yet they were given this uh yeah go do whatever you want to do but the cynical in me thinks that as soon as film established itself as a true industry and and people saw that you know this is profitable and this is something that we can make money off and business structures were established then men took over and uh, sort of what you hinted at men ended up pushing women to the side and said you know we're going to take over and, and even take over your recognitions and whatever you did, we're going to own it. And like you said, I have written just like this. There really isn't a notable female director until maybe Ida Lubino in the 40s. And, and that's it. You mentioned Lenny stuff, which I think is a a, a special case. Well, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> when you have the Nazis um, behind you, Carlo, you can do yeah. anything. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Definitely. There's Maya Darren, but she's very niche, I think. Yeah, it, very, very art niche. House. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Dorothy Arsner, which is the only other one that, aside of Lupino, really took over during that time. So it's interesting to see why, why that disproportionate ratio of female versus male. But I think it's also a reflection of society, of how the male dominance, the patriarchal mentality, uh, male-driven mentality. So I think it's not something exclusive to cinema.
1: Oh, no, it's definitely not exclusive to cinema. And, and I think you have to really look at the timeline, too, I think, really can give you some insight into when these things are happening. Like I said, you know, women getting the vote. But I mean, I think the war is very important. But, you know, one reason, as you say, is for the sort of punk rock mentality of early cinema, you know, one thing that happened, you know, maybe like, say, 1905-ish to, I don't know, 1915 or so. It was a very fluid world like you know the a person that was acting in a film might be also a costumer might also be like holding the mic might also be like directing some scene yeah. you know it was just everyone was doing everything there was just yeah. there was not a lot of compartmentalization of jobs and so you know you sort of jumped in where jumping in was needed and a lot of people came from the theater you know film was centered in New York at that point and a lot of people came from the theater where, you know, women were holding their own, you know, there weren't really women directors of theater, I think, you know, productions, but, you know, there were probably just as many female actresses as female actors. And so when the movies happened, like that sort of ratio kept in, right, was kept built into the system. And because everyone was sort of Doing various jobs, it was easy to sort of transition from if you wanted to all of a sudden direct, it was it was sort of an easier transition to make at that time. And so you had a lot of women. I mean, and first of all, women were completely dominant in the 1910s in terms of acting like you know, all the major serial stars and everything were women. I mean, there was maybe a couple people in Westerns. like Valentino is probably a huge exception in terms of just like box office cachet and you know, draw as a as a male star. But like really, the big stars were women, and women were writing and doing all these things. But of course, you know going back to your point about cultural reasons is one thing that always happened is when women got married, they oh, yeah, stopped working. So, yeah. you know, you might have these young stars and that, you know, like Mabel Norbin starts directing them. I mean, she's the first person to direct Chaplin. And, you know, you, you have all these young stars that sort of make this transition and, and start working in Hollywood when the shifts to ho- shift happens to Hollywood. But then the war happens, right? So you have a lot of shifting in roles there. Just after the war, the women get the vote. You know, I got to assume there's a lot of backlash to that. And, you know, and just again, like people are trying to recover after the war and get back to the way things were always making America great again. And (laughs) um, so there's that element. And then, you know, sound comes in. And that's a whole nother element. But as you say, like, once the shift to Hollywood happens, which happens around the time of the war, and then really gets cemented in the 20s, you know, the money people get involved. And it's like, however, I will say that Props to, I guess, studios like Universal that in the 1910s, they saw the value of having women directors. You know, they wanted the prestige, social reform film. You know, you have all these films. If you've seen films in in the silent era from the 1910s, like there's a lot of films about the immigrant experience. There's a lot of social reform films about, you know, like white slavery and trafficking and drugs and you know, women were seen as sort of the ideal candidates to direct some of these types of movies. And so, you know, they were sort of seen as a valuable asset. And, you know, Lois Weber was the highest paid director in Hollywood at one point in the 1910s. And Frances Marion for a long time was the highest paid writer and, you know, won multiple Oscars in the first years of the Oscars were out. And so they had their successes. But I think gradually when, you know, when you start having unions come in, and people specializing and it becoming an, a sort of an old boy network type of thing, they got pushed out. You know, there's a lot of reasons for it, but yeah. I think that's a big one.
3: And, and now that you mentioned Lois Weber, one thing you mentioned to me uh, a couple of days ago you mentioned that she was marketed by Universal as providing a quote unquote woman's touch yeah. uh, at a moment when social issue reform movies, like you mentioned, uh, The Boat World, The Rage in the 1910s. But do you think that that woman's touch, do you think there's an expectation for female directors to uh, stick to certain genres and style, uh, either from the studio that hires you that said, no, you, you have to direct this kind of movies, or from the audience that said, no, you, you're a female director, we expect this from you. Do you think there's that?
1: Well, I think there is, but it's it's not that direct, I would say. Again, going back to the point that I think a lot of people don't know who their directed movie. Yeah. But what studies have shown is uh, what happens when you have more women directors is I know you're going to be shocked, Carlo. But when you have more women directors, there are actually more women actors in those films. Like male directors generally have 10 percent of speaking roles are women. And when women are directors, it's not 50 percent, sadly, but it's about 30 percent. But what that means is, you know, if you're an audience member, you're trying to decide to see a film. Right? You're sort of looking like, oh, who's in it? What's it about? What's the general story? So if it's by a woman, you're not going to say, oh, that's by a woman. I want to see it or I don't want to see it. You're probably going to say, like, oh, that's a movie about a group of women doing X or a group of men doing X. Like, so that's more or less appealing to me. So I don't know that it's a conscious choice. I think it's more like to see a woman director or not. It, I think it's more plays into the type of stories. And I don't think, I mean, I think if you stop 10 people on the street and ask them what type of movies women direct, I bet you, they would say, for example, rom-coms, but yeah. actually there's most rom-coms like the really famous rom-coms in like eighties and nineties rom-coms, the classics one might say are directed by men and actually are often written by men. So they're seen as chick flicks, but they're not by women for the most part. I mean, they're obviously Nora Ephron. There's exceptions, but yeah. horror. I mean, horror is a genre where you find a lot of female directors. I think that's a budget question more than a yeah. subject matter question. You know, horror is a good breaking into the film industry genre, yeah. right? I think you see a lot of horror. So I, I don't know. I think from a studio perspective, from a person financing a movie perspective there's a knowledge, a sad but true knowledge that if I make this film that's quote unquote for women, women will go see it. But if I make a film that's quote unquote for men, men will see it, but women will also see it. You know, so if I know that I have an audience of 75% potentially versus 50%, you know, that's what I'm going to go for. And that has a lot of reasons behind it. Like,
3: Money money drives everything.
1: Well, it's money, but, you know, it's like, that's the culture, you know? Just men can't be seen to do feminine. I mean, look at Power of the Dog. Like, just the comments that I've seen about Power of the Dog, about why is a woman directing a Western? Why is a New Zealand woman directing a Western? Why is, it takes place in Montana, but this just isn't a Western. I was like, well, I mean, you just did a show on Westerns, right? Like, if you look at what makes a Western that's a Western, right? And if you think that Westerns don't question masculinity, well, you haven't seen a lot of Westerns. So yeah, I mean, I think people do have expectations about what types of films maybe women can do. But I I don't know that it's very blatant, but I think it definitely plays a role.
3: Yeah, I think think it's there. But you brought up Catherine Bigelow and do you think that's the reason that she's so prominent? I love that you mentioned that even though she focuses on action movies, how her movies constantly questions masculinity. I think that's a great point to make, that even though she's being more prominent in this genre, she's actually doing something to push your buttons, so to speak, or challenge the male viewer. So I think that's really an interesting take on her career.
1: I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm of course happy for her success and I think she does great films. I actually have, I really need to see more of her films. I haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty and I really need to, but uh, you know, I've seen The Hurt Locker. I just rewatched Point Break after not having seen it for quite a long time. And I must say like, (laughs) it's disturbingly misogynistic in many ways, that script. It really falls into the classic. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I'm a huge Keanu fan, so by default I like that movie. But um but I will say like that movie is a classic. It really falls into the trap of the token woman. Oh yeah. I love Tyler because she's very strong and she's fierce and she's willing to speak her mind and all those things are great. But at the same time, like the only reason she's part of this movie is like, she's the ex-girlfriend of Patrick Swayze's character. Yeah. Like she can't just be a good surfer and a friend of these dudes like that are also surfers. Some, for some reason, like she can't sort of be there of her own merit. She has to be like an ex-girlfriend, which I find really disappointing. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of undertones to that film and
3: you know, it's, <laughs> it, Speaking of question masculinity.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it definitely like held up, but I thought I was gonna really think it held up and I, I sort of was like, Oh, it's good. I like it. It's enjoy it's definitely an enjoyable movie, but I really need to rewatch the Hurt Locker because I haven't seen it since it came out. I mean I I remember really liking it, but
2: me neither,
3: I, I me really
1: neither. can't I can't really speak to it.
3: I also haven't seen it since it came out, so I really owe it a rewatch, but I remember really liking it. But Zero Dark Thirty I remember liking it, but not being that impressed by it. But then again, I found myself watching bits and pieces every now and then on cable TV and kind of like warming up more to it. At least from a directing standpoint, she does a great job but i wasn't a huge fan of detroit either there's
1: oh, detroit has a lot of problems yeah <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely things to like about that movie but yeah, um, yeah.
3: She, she handles the, the tension great tension yeah. but there were other issues that i think could have been worked around but like i said it's good to have someone if we should say so open the way maybe if it hadn't been for her would we have chloe Zhao or would we have jane Campion winning oscars more recently Yeah,
1: I mean, I I don't want to take away anything from Catherine Bigelow, but I I do think that there's multiple reasons that she won the Oscar, and not least of which is, you know, the types of movies she made and the types of movies that were likely to be seen by other Oscar members. And I mean, it's always important to remember with the Oscars that the individual awards, if you're thinking beyond Best Picture, the individual nominations are always from the branch that is is. You know, like the branch of directors is nominating directors. And so it's a club. And if you're in the club, you're in the club. And if you're not, you're not. And it's changing and the membership is diversified and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of, oh, if my friend did this movie, I'm going to watch that movie. And so then you've seen that. I mean, it really just goes back to the same issue with female directors. Like, if most of your critics are men and most of your people making films are men, then... You're going to have a canon, say the Sight and Sound List, which is coming out soon, I think, the new Sight and Sound List. If for 100 years of filmmaking, you've looked at films a certain way and you've decided, okay, these films are great films. And I'm not saying they're not great films. But then when new people come along, when young people come along or young filmmakers want to look to the greats, well, they go to these lists. And what are those lists? Well, those lists are all male directors and, you know, decided by male critics that these are the great films. And again, I'm not saying that they're not the great films, but there's other great films out there. And if that's what you're looking to, it's going to take a lot of time for newer ways of looking at movies, newer perspectives to sort of break through. And that's, I mean, that's just inevitable that it's going to take the time to do and for everything to filter. And I don't know if you've realized this, Carlo, but we first started talking about doing this subject about a year ago, maybe? I've pretty much only recommended films by women directors in the lists I send you every month.
3: Yeah, I I, I kinda (laughs) notice it.
1: But the thing is, the more that that happens on a regular basis, the more people that watch the film, they say, oh, hey, there's this great film that you, like Marlena, uh, The Murderer in Four Acts, for example. Someone recommended that to you. I heard about it, I'm like, oh, I love Westerns. I love revenge Westerns. I love films by women. Let me check it out. And, you know, the more that that type of stuff gets out there, I think the more that we change the parameters of what we think of when we think of a Western. And yeah. one thing I've noticed watching a lot of films by women, and I probably should say I started watching films by women in a serious way in 20 late 2015. So since 2016, I have watched over 300 different feature films by women And in watching so many films by women, one thing I realized is, like, they don't often – I mean, also, there's not a lot that characterizes a film by a woman versus a film by a man, necessarily. But one thing I've noticed is, A, there's more women in them. Again, shock. Yeah. Um, But, B, there's a lot of genre fusion, I would say. And again, this happens in many male directors, you know, sort of cross genre. Like Tarantino is a good example of someone like his films are sort of all over the place in many ways. They don't easily fit into a genre slot. And women's films are, again, Point Break is a great example. Like, is that an action film? Is it a heist film? Is it a crime film? Is it a sports film? Yeah. It's not easily pegged there's a romance you know it's it's not easy to sort of slot into something and you know I think directors can have more success when they're sort of easily slotted into a type of film at least in the beginning oh I like that film and they do this type of film so I should probably see more by that person and maybe plays into Bigelow's success quite frankly like if she's seen as an action director then,
3: you yeah know. one thing that you brought up Marlena uh, which is an Indonesian film <laughs> Do you think the struggle is different, better or worse, in other countries?
1: That's funny, too, because that's like, it's Indonesian. I'm really bad in Asian cinema, so I can't, I really can't speak to Asian cinema at all.
3: No, Um, for example, France or or any other country different as the U.S.
1: Let's just say, first off, it's not easy to get a film made no matter who you are. Yeah. Right. So I think the struggles of women are particular in the Hollywood sense in terms of financing, and a lot of that is done with sort of networking, and, and that's sort of disadvantageous to, you know, unknown women. But I will say, I mean, I mostly know about European cinema, especially French cinema. There's definitely less of an issue. You know, France has this really strong industry in terms of Europe. France is by far the strongest film industry in Europe. It has been for a long time and it has been since the beginning of <laughs> the beginning of film industry. My <laughs> dissertation was actually on the reception of American films in post-war France. So I wrote a lot about the Cahiers de Cinema critics and their appreciation of American films. And that was a period where the French were very scared of American domination in many respects, but especially of the film industry, of which they were very proud. So in the 40s, they set up a lot of systems to support the industry, to fund filmmakers, to fund research. You know, that's when they started the National Film Center, the CNC. If you ever watched a European foreign film, you'll often see either Canal Plus, which is cable station, or you'll see the CNC, because they do a lot of co-productions and funding And the system in France of subsidizing the cinema industry is set up to encourage investment in the industry. So there's all sort of mechanisms that make it attractive to investors to invest in the industry. And of course, it's easier to go to film school in France because you don't have to pay a lot to go to film school in France. So women are more on an equal footing in terms of being able to go to school to study film, study filmmaking, to get support. There's a system of, it's almost like a book advance system. Like when you get an advance on sales, they have the same sort of system for film. So a lot of women make their first films by using that system where they get an advance on sort of the future receipts, the box office receipts of the film. And so you definitely, I mean, there's still plenty of sexism in France (laughs) and plenty of other issues that make it hard, but I would say they've had a lot more success and I would probably say that most of your listeners would assume are filmy people that have seen recent films. If you have seen or know any French film directors for the last, say, 10 years, then you probably know more French film directors than male French film directors. You know, you have Portrait of a Girl on Fire. Yeah. The Céline Siama, you know, she's yeah. directed a bunch of films that have had a lot of success. Claire Portrait Denis, of a Lady of Fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I don't always know the English name. Claire Denis, who is, has been active for years, since the late 90s. There were a lot of French films by women in the 80s and 90s. Um, so, yeah, they've had success. And obviously, Alice Guy Blaché. There's a lot of avant-garde, like Germaine Dulac was a surrealist filmmaker and was very active in the late teens and 20s. But there's been a smattering. The decorate I'm working on for my Century Plus project is in the 1940s. I just watched a noir from Norway, the only other noir besides Ida Lupino that is directed by a woman. And it's from Norway. So it's very interesting because of course they have no film production code there. And it was by a director who I don't know, but is apparently a fairly successful 40s and 50s director in Norway. But the problem is how many directors are there in Norway? So yes, I think percentage wise, Probably a much greater percentage, but the overall film production is so much lower than the US or China or India that I don't know how that sort of compares on a world level. But I would say, yes, there's maybe more opportunity. There's no studio system in France, really. So it's it's just a different way of financing yeah, and making yeah. films and stuff. You don't see that. And of course, Laney Ruffin, I mean, you can't ignore her. You have Lena Vertmailer in Italy in the 70s making films. I think you've had a smattering of successes. Well, and of course you have Jane Campion, Gillian Armstrong. You say you have a number of New Zealand, Australian directors that have been able to make films. I would say I know as many female Australian directors as male Australian directors. Yeah. <laughs> Again, what that's saying, I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine there's different challenges.
3: Yeah. No, definitely. I want to close this section with one more question. We already spoke a bit about the three Oscar winners, three female directors that have already won the Oscars, all of them within the last 20 years, two of them back to back in the last two years. We have Catherine Bigelow, we had Chloe Shao and we had Jane Campion. Does this mean there's a, a shift in the mentality or is it just because it's trendy, it's uh, woke?
1: <laughs> um, I think one always hopes That it is a shift. I think there's good news and bad news on that front. I mean, the pessimistic way of looking at it is you know, there's a, what is it called? The Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film has been doing statistics on this type of thing for, you know, 20 years or more. And basically, I was trying to look at the most recent stats. And basically, what they found is like, sadly, like the percentages of women doing different jobs in the industry, whether it's directing or writing or whatever, like, There hasn't been a lot of movement in terms of overall percentages of like top grossing films that women are involved in, which is a little sad. I mean, I think with directors, 1998, there were like 9% of the 250 top grossing films were directed by women. And the most recent year that they did the study was like 2019, and it had gone up to 13%. So I think what they would say is there hasn't been much shift, like for all the talk that of wokeness and festivals, specifically trying to diversify, a lot of festivals have sort of come out like, no, 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 we're going to have more films by women. And actually like women in terms of festival presence, they do pretty well. Like they're very strong in shorts. They're very strong in documentaries. And so overall, if you look at women at film festivals, they have a lot of films and competition. And often those films are critically received, but then sort of as the shift happens to awards talk and stuff, a lot of them, I think, get left behind, you know, because they're too arty or, you know, for whatever reason. So there definitely has been a shift there. And then there was an increase in last year's statistics. And then, of course, you know, with the pandemic, though, it's hard to sort of know what direction things are going in. And again, yeah, people can accuse the Oscars of being woke by having more people of color nominated and more women nominated. But again, are they 50%? That's what they are in the population until they're 50%. Like, well, you know, (laughs) and I, I looked at my own sort of statistics. I've been doing top tens for probably 10 years or so. And I sort of looked, I was like, well, like, how many films were directed by women in, the, like, in my top 10? And, and actually, the last couple of years, it's been half. There have been a lot of good films by women in these last few years. And a lot of critics have appreciated them. So there may be a shift.
3: I'm going to tell you Two something. I just realized when I was finishing my notes before before we started the conversation that all of the films and directors that I have on my top five or top seven, which is still top seven. Uh, we'll get there,
1: Carlo. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll get five.
3: They're all from the last 10 years. Um, Yeah. So definitely it goes to show that there has been a lot of quality output from women in the last years.
1: I purposely strove not to do that, but there's like 30, at least 30 films I could easily put in the top five. I'll tell you that. And a lot of them, I would say, would be from the last five years. So I purposely sort of didn't, I I sort of feel like the films that have come out recently, you know, I sort of was like, you know, let me put that aside for the list purposes, because I sort of feel like, you know, people have heard of Nomadland. A lot of people maybe haven't seen it because it looked depressing or for whatever reason. And I would encourage you to see it because it's a great film. And it was my number two film of that year. Actually, First Cow was my favorite film of 2020, which is also by a woman. But I think people sort of know of that or, you know, anything that was sort of nominated, No Man Land, Promising Young Woman. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think people are sort of aware of them. So while I might think I loved them and I might think they're great, I, again, my list isn't final either, Carlo. So, I, you know, I don't think we'll
3: wrap we'll, up. Though, we'll get there. We'll get there. No, well, it's time to head to the lounge for some good fun. So, oh dear, uh, yeah, I'm worried. Yeah. I'm
1: worried, worried. <laughs> you know, Are you, know, you, know, you always... going to be singing, Carlo? Cause...
3: No, 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 oh, no that's not sad. today. <laughs> now, well, we're going to do? We're going to do a, a women's trivia, and I'm going to ask you a couple of simple trivia questions of female <laughs> directors <laughs> and, female, mm-hmm. uh, and films directed by women, and see how how well you do.
2: Um, uh,
3: yeah. I, I know you're going to do great. I'm going to start with an easy one. This director is the cousin of Jason Schwartzman and Nicolas Cage. Who is she? Oh,
1: Sophia Coppola.
3: Yeah, you got it? First. Yeah. The director of this film decided to offer the lead role to Jessica Chastain after seeing an early cut of Coriolanus. However, Chastain's agents initially declined. A producer gave the director Chastain's phone number, and she personally called her to offer the role, which she accepted and was eventually nominated for. Who is her?
1: Okay, I'm going to assume that's Zero Dark Thirty.
3: Okay, and the director?
1: Which, oh, Catherine Bigelow. Ah, you got
3: it. <laughs> Which
1: I have not seen, as we
3: discussed <laughs> previously. <laughs> Chast- Chastain is very good in it. So.
1: Yeah. I don't know why I didn't see that. There was no particular reason I didn't see that movie. And I normally see Oscar films, so I don't know what was going on that year. but.
3: Like I said, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. So, what was the name of the studio founded by Alice Guy Blachet and her husband, Herbert?
1: Ah, Solak.
3: Oh, yeah, you got it. 343, doing great. Although the director's first collaboration with Nicole Kidman as director and actress was in the 1990s, it had been the director who had discovered Kidman at the age of 14 while she was performing at Australian Theatre for Young People. Who is her?
1: Oh, my God. Um,
3: She discovered Nicole Kidman at age 14, and then about 10 years later, they collaborated with their first film together. Sorry.
1: Okay, why am I blanking on this? It was the director's first film?
3: No, no. Her first film with Nicole Kidman.
1: More oh, both. oh, well then it's Jane Campion.
3: Yeah, no. Jane Campion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Who was the first female director to be nominated for a Best Directing Oscar?
1: Oh, that's Lena Vertmailer. For
3: what Wait. film?
1: Um, Seven Beauties.
3: Yeah, got it. That that I've
1: only, I really need to see more of her stuff. I've only seen Seduction of Mimi. And I really need to see Seven Beauties and uh, Love and Anarchy, but I just haven't gotten to them yet.
3: Yeah, I haven't seen anything, so <laughs> I have homework. So uh, this director's first break came when the director for a film she had written and was producing suffered a heart attack, forcing her to step in. She directed the film in its entirety, but refused to be credited for it. Who is her?
1: Oh, I think that's Ida Lupino.
3: Yeah. Do you remember I the film? Ida who
1: like, oh... Is it her first film?
3: Yeah, uncredited uh, so, because she, she refused to be credited for. But uh,
1: so is that? Hmm. Never wanted.
3: Not wanted. Yeah. Not wanted. Yeah. Okay. I do so, know. Pino
1: is famous for stepping <laughs> in for directors and not being credited. She did all this television that the director would be like drunk or hangover or something, and she would like go and take over for them.
3: Yes. And a couple of the questions that I have have to do with that, where women or female directors end up directing something out of chance, not necessarily because they were selected, but uh, it goes to, to our point of what are the opportunities that women have. But let's see this one. This is another example, another similar example. This film had a problematic production due to some studio meddling, which resulted in the original director, Amin, being dismissed. When Raja Gosnell, director of Home Alone 3, was chosen as replacement, actor Robert Carlyle suggested this female director and frequent collaborator as the replacement instead. Who was her?
1: Robert Carlyle? Yep. So... I'm gonna guess it's a British film, maybe.
3: Yes, I I think it is.
1: Um, Pretty sure it is. Wait a minute. We say the. can you repeat the question, please, Carl?
3: <laughs> <laughs> this film had a problematic production due to some studio meddling, which resulted in the original director, a man, being dismissed. The studio brought Raja Gosnell, director of Home Alone 3 and later scooby uh, He was chosen by the studio as the replacement. But actor Robert Carlyle stepped in. He was already an actor in, in this film. And he suggested, you know, why don't you bring this female director, with whom I worked before, uh, as the replacement instead?
1: My god, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna kick myself
3: <laughs> Antonia Bird in Ravenous.
1: Oh, okay, I have not seen Ravenous, I've seen Priest, but I, I literally there's a whole bunch of movies like that that I saw when they came out and I have not seen them since.
3: Oh, no, Ravenous um, is it's so. very good, it's great. I, I considered it for my list, but didn't end up, but, but it's pretty good.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. But I, I would never have gotten that. I don't feel so bad.
3: Okay, let's see this one. This director has said that this superhero film is the film she had been wanting to do her whole life and that she was fortunate to come back to it because she had been in talks to direct it in 2005, but had to step down because of her unexpected pregnancy. Even though she had only directed one low-budget drama film in her career, had no experience handling a big-budget action movie, they chose her for this film.
1: I think it's Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman.
3: Yeah, you got it.
1: Yeah, because I know she'd been dreaming about that film for a long time.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think it's really interesting. But then again, you get that chance. I mean, she was in talks, but the film, I suppose, was stuck in development health for a good while. And she was fortunate enough to get back to it. (laughs) This director has rejected people classifying one of her films as a quote-unquote horror movie, as while her intent was to disturb, it was not to scare. Instead, she views the film as a mix of comedy, drama, teen movie, and body horror. What director and what film?
1: Wait. Hmm. Teen movie? Body horror? Yep. Wait. She doesn't call it a horror movie.
3: Uh, She rejects that people call it a horror movie. Film is disturbing, but it wasn't meant to scare. So she says. And I agree.
1: And what are the genres she thinks it is? Uh,
3: mix, mix of comedy, drama, teen movie, and body horror. Teen? Yeah.
1: That's what's. See, because I would say American Psycho, but I wouldn't call it a teen movie. So <sighs> Jennifer's Body?
3: Nope. Julia Dukourne on Raw.
1: Oh. Oh, you mean the movie I didn't finish because I got physically sick watching it? Is that the movie you mean, Carlo?
3: I read that happened to many people in the audience.
1: <laughs> I really wanted to like that movie, but it literally sent me to the bathroom,
3: so... I-, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I also had it on the periphery of my list. So you did great. You just missed, like, two, I think.
1: I feel I feel strong about that performance, <laughs>
3: So, let's head into the final conversation, the Women's Loot, where we will talk about our top five films directed by uh, women. So, as usual, we're going to do uh, 5, 4, 3, to 1. Start with your number five.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm trying to mentally prepare myself for this selection process. Okay. I'm going to start with my deepest cut, because it's a film I, when I was sort of thinking about this, it was the one film that I was like, okay, I know this is going to be on the list. I mean, I know I want to talk about this film. I mean, I'm doing one to five, but I'm not sure that I would say that they were in in any order, but I'm fine with this being five, I suppose. And that is a film called The Last Stage. It's from 1948. I only, only watch this film because, A, I, I do this project that's 52 films by women in a year. So every year I try to watch roughly a movie a week by a woman. And so when I'm doing my century plus movies, and right now I'm looking at the 40s, that's when you really start to get to not having a lot of films by women to choose from. So, but I had identified a few and I put this one off because I was like, I don't want to watch a movie about the Holocaust. You know, this is going to be depressing. But it was something that came up. It, it's weird. It's, it's a Polish movie from 1948. And it's sort of just, comes up on the periphery of discussions was how I found it. It's said to be influential for certain directors and some things like that. And so I was like, well, what is this film? It's about the Holocaust. Okay, I'll I'll try it. I really would encourage everyone to see this movie because it's a fantastic film, but also it's just one of the best movies about the Holocaust. And it's by this Polish director. Who, when I learned more about it, was fascinating. You have to find it on YouTube, and you have to be sure to have English subtitles or whatever language subtitles, because the first time I tried to watch it on Roku, it was a overdubbed version of the film. So it, the film is in Polish and German, and it was overdubbed, I think, in Russian, and there were no subtitles. And it was an absolute night. I watched it for about five minutes. I was like, I can't do this. I mean, I don't like overdubbing. It's very popular in Polish TV and cinema to overdub things. But I was like, I can't stand this because I don't speak any of these languages. I mean, I know a little, a minuscule amount of Polish, but like, I was like, yeah, I don't speak any of these languages. (laughs) So the movie is called The Last Stage is made by this woman who was in Auschwitz in a concentration camp. She was a filmmaker before the war. So she was already an established filmmaker. Actually, Carlo, this could have been a trivia question because she is the first woman that was ever nominated for an Oscar because she directed a short that was a nominated film in the 30s. And so, you know, she was a a leftist filmmaker, an established filmmaker, and she was in the resistance and she got arrested on some random charge and was sent to prison during the war. So she was first in prison. And when she was in prison, they learned about her resistance activities. And so she got sent to Auschwitz. But because she was this filmmaker, her job at, she was in sort of one of the side camps of Auschwitz. And her job was like taking photographs, like they had like a plant research center, you know, whatever they were doing, (laughs) like, whatever, there was a plant garden thing that they were doing research, and she had to photograph plants. So her Auschwitz experience in general was mostly, yeah, relatively good, let's say for that situation. But she continued her underground resistance activities while in the camps. And it was discovered, and she was sent to Ravensbrück. So she was really on the brink of probably being killed. But this was like a week before the Russians liberated the camps. And so they came in and she was liberated. And she goes back to Auschwitz three years later to make this movie, which is a fiction movie about the women's camp in Auschwitz. And so it's just an incredible historic document because it's filmed at Auschwitz with former people that had been in prison there as extras and things like that. It's filmed on location. Good part of it is filmed on location. So just as a historical document of, we always talk about Shoah or Night and Fog, these seminal works about that experience, but this was made in the late 40s. And it's, the amazing thing is, so I sort of sit down to watch this movie expecting, you know, to not be happy for the next few hours, but it's, it's actually like there's very uplifting parts. It's not quite like life is beautiful type of take on the camps, but it's definitely a more positive spin. It's, definitely more feminist spin. There's a little bit about the resistance activities and it's just shot beautifully. Like it's actually just a beautifully shot film. Like it's just really well done. And despite watching it on YouTube or wherever I finally saw it with the right subtitles, it was pretty good transfer. You know, like sometimes you watch some of these old films and you're just like, oh God, this is so hard to watch because it's just not in great shape, but it's in pretty good shape. So I would definitely encourage anyone that has any interest in the topic to watch it. And also because this director, Wanda Jubakowska, this film wins the grand prize at Karlova Vary, which is a Czech film festival that still happens every year. And the first year that they had this festival and there was a grand prize, this film won that prize. So it, it was actually very well received at the time. It was critically well-received. She sort of veers into communist propaganda after this film. And so I think that's one reason why we don't know her name. But if you are interested in Polish cinema at all, she's probably a good name to know because what she ends up doing after this film is she moves to Łódź, which is where the National Film School is in Poland. And she taught at Łódź for the next like 25 years. So every Polish film director you know, whether it's Klaslowski or Polanski, I mean, any of them, they all went through the National Film School in Łódź, and she probably taught them. So she's sort of the seminal figure that, again, has been completely forgotten by history, at least in the U.S. This film has been logged by only 385 people on Letterboxd. Um, So that's why it's a deep cut. But I enjoyed watching it. So I just highly recommend it. So The Last Stage by Wanda Jakubowska.
3: Definitely something that piques my interest. So I'm definitely going to try to check it out hadn't yeah. even heard of it. So yeah, that definitely goes to the watch list. <laughs> so from 1948, we're going to move to 2018 for my number five. And right. I'm going to start with my first and only Claire Denis film so far, which is High Life. Um, oh. Yeah. This film was quite something. I, I remember, yes. I remember listening to a, a podcast with film critic Scott Wise, where he said, uh, "No, I definitely wouldn't recommend this film as the first knee film for anyone." Yeah, but, but it was it was my first one. <laughs> But i loved it for those that don't know that film stars robert pattinson he plays uh, monty he's a surviving member of a space crew of criminals they're sent to a distant black hole for some sort of mission and for reasons that are revealed as the film progresses he's left alone he ends up stranded and alone on the ship taking care of a baby and through flashbacks, he starts to reveal what really happened and what led to Monty being left alone with baby Willow. Uh, and this includes uh, clashes with the other criminals, a crazy doctor, and uh, a lot of sexual imagery. Uh, and not only imagery, but sexual stuff. But it really stuck with me. The film stuck with me. And I remember it was a couple of days later that I was thinking about it and listening stuff about it, and it kind of clicked. There's a quote on the film. A moment where Pattinson's character, he says, we were scum, we we're trash, refuse that didn't fit into the system until someone had the idea to recycle us, which obviously he meant how this system used them for this mission where they would eventually end up dead but ultimately i took it as a story this is a story about second chances people that get second chances and what we make of them because all of the characters that we meet are given a chance to atone for past mistakes and whatever they did while they were on earth and not all of them make the most of it but monty is one of these characters that actually you see what happens to him as the film progresses, I think it's really beautiful. And I really, I really loved it. I think it was a beautiful film, beautifully shot, and very thought-provoking and interesting to watch.
1: Yeah, that is not the first film I would suggest anyone watch from Claire Denis, <laughs> for sure. Um, she's, I, she, you know, it's so funny. She sort of hit a miss for, I've probably seen about 10 of her films. Like I said, she was, she's been very active since the late 90s and really just does super interesting pieces and, often very different from one another. And actually, I probably recommended a few. I mean, I I don't know that I have a favorite film from her. Um, A lot of people like Beau Travail. I did not like High Life, I'll just say that. I mean, I'm not a huge sci-fi person in general, but I love Robert Pattinson just does such interesting projects. She's really great. So um, that was probably one reason I sort of saw that, even though just based on what I knew about it, I was like, I don't think I'm going to like this one. But she's definitely a director. I would recommend that if you're interested in women directors to take a look at her stuff. Oh, her early stuff is fairly autobiographical. She grew up in Africa. And so her first few films take place there in Africa and there's sort of a coming of age one and there's... Uh, One of my favorite films of hers is called White Material, and it's basically about sort of, you know, a war erupting in an African country, and a a woman, Isabel Huppert, is like a colonial woman who's living there with her husband, who she's not really attached to anymore. And it's sort of like, you know, what is she going to do as this sort of civil war is erupting around her, and obviously she's this white woman that's there and probably will not be treated very well. So she sort of has films like that. She's done a few. The Photo of I is sort of a adaptation of Billy Budd, the Melville story. Very sort of homoerotic imagery in that one. And probably my favorite film of hers is called Thirty Five Shots of Rum, oh, and it's a yeah. father daughter story. I've done, that's definitely one I've recommended to you before. It's just a Paris father daughter story. You know, daughters sort are of growing up, and their father, you know, getting older and Um, Just a, you know, sort of intimate family drama type of thing. So she really does a lot of variety. So I would definitely say with if you sort of explore her and you don't like a first one, like definitely, you know, it's it's worth trying others because she's done some really interesting stuff.
3: Yeah, based on this one, I definitely plan to check more of her stuff. So uh, what's your number four?
1: Um, What is my number four? I think my number four is I think I'm just going to go mostly chronologically here. Um, So I'm mostly trying to sort of do more hidden gems. I mean, there's a lot of films I love and a lot of recent films I love. But like I said, I think people sort of either know about them. And I'm sort of mostly trying to highlight films that are maybe more under the radar. Yeah. And this film isn't totally under the radar because I think there's a lot of film buffs that love it. But it's probably not as well known as some other 70s movies that are out there. And so my number four is Mikey and Nikki by Elaine May. And it's, it's a very recent watch for me. I only saw it for the first time last year or the last year or two. It was one of those movies where you watch it. It's like, I could watch these two guys like all day. It's just, it's a story of a friendship. It's Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. And they play these sort of low-ranking mobsters it's a 70s crime mafia film but not like any other crime mafia film you've seen because it takes place over one night it's these two guys that are friendly in real life so they have great chemistry the two actors and they play childhood friends that are both you know in the mob and the story starts off with john cassavetes has basically stolen money from his boss and they've put a hit out on him and he's like turned to his friend mikey for help but Spoiler alert, Mikey's also in this mob. And his job is sort of to try to get John Cassavetes' character, Nikki, to where he needs to be to have this hit put on him. And the hitman is played by Ned Beatty, who also has sort of a side part, like, the whole way through, which is also sort of hilarious. But a lot of it is just, I mean, Elaine May, all her films sort of revolve around betrayal in some form is a crime film and it's a mafia film and it sort of has those elements and it's sort of gritty realistic but it's it's not romanticized in any way like it's not this romantic portrayal of the mob like something like the godfather is you know where again they're not good people but it's sort of done in a very romanticized way whereas this is like the nitty gritty of low-rent mobsters who are friends and have been through a lot together who aren't necessarily great people and it's a lot about toxic masculinity and the women in this film are not treated very well at all but I mean I think that's part of her point (laughs) And it's just the banter they have. And it's one of those movies that, first of all, Elaine May often doesn't credit for because, it, you know, it's very much in that sort of improv, Cassavetes, okay. loose style. And so people think it is improvised, but actually the entire script is what the film is. Like, it's not improvised at all. And there's all sorts of stories about, you know, she had to really, like protect her director's cut of this film. She hid real the film from the, like there's a whole like side history to the making of this movie and how the studio tried to get it away from her and cut it differently and how she would just let the camera run. And she went, I mean, she had so much film and there was like a sound issue. It took, you know, years to sort of edit together because there were all these sound problems and she would just let their camera run even without film in it and just like let them go. But it's all in this very tight script that apparently was based on people she knew. So yeah, it's just this great story of a friendship, but it's not people you want to be or want to be around, but they're just so much fun together. And it's, like I said, it takes place in one night. So it's sort of the start of the night. And then it just like goes through the whole night as they are wandering around this town that starts off as Philly, but obviously becomes LA at a certain yeah. point. If you like, if you like 70s movies and you like crime films, there's no reason not to check out this film because it's just a really interesting take on the genre.
3: I hadn't heard about it until, I don't know, probably while I was doing my research, I stumbled upon the name. I didn't even look what it was about. But now that you mention mentioned and talk about what it is, it definitely seems like something that I would love to check. So another one to the watch list.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's part of the Criterion Collection, so it's actually on, and it's on the Criterion channel. So that's an easy way to see it. Some of her films are very difficult to see, but um, that one is not.
3: Okay, so for my next one, I had two probable ones, but I'm going to say which is the one that won't make it, which is Marlena.
1: Ah, <laughs> Yay!
3: We already talked a bit about it, and actually I mentioned it on my Western loot, so I'm going to get past it and go with the other one that I have. The other one I have is Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019 by Celine Sciamma, which we already mentioned briefly. And this is a film that is set in 18th century France, follows this painter marianne she's commissioned to paint a portrait of eloise a wealthy young woman that's about to enter an arranged marriage and they obviously develop a bond and eventually an affair which they have to keep secret for obvious reasons uh this film is so beautiful in pretty much every aspect the direction by siama is impeccable and the story is beautiful but tragic at the same time there's an organic beauty to how you see these two women meet and how their relationship evolve, and you see how their friendship blossoms into this relationship. And Siyama has, since we're talking about female directors, you know, there, there's a lot of patience in Siyama and how she lets her scene and these moments between these two women breathe and how you see everything unfold. It was beautiful. I thought it was a beautiful film. And I think very representative of maybe the conditions of certain groups during history, because, you know, LGBTQ communities were probably not very well received in that time in France. So it goes to the tragic choices that many people probably took and their regrets and the sadness with which maybe a lot of people had to live with and carry with them. So I thought it was beautiful. I really loved it.
1: I really like that film as well. I've seen four of Sienna's films. There's, I think there's still one or two. There's definitely one I haven't seen. But for anyone that likes Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I would definitely recommend her other stuff. She, like, as you say, it's just, she has such a great way of, uh, a lot of her films are sort of kicks in the gut, but they're so tender and beautiful at the same time. It's like your heart breaks for the people that she's focusing on. But at the same time, they're sort of also uplifting and beautiful. And it's it's very weird. And they're shot really beautifully for the most yeah. part. Petit Maman, which is her latest film that just came out last year, was definitely one of my favorite films of the year. And she does a lot of, um, I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the only non-coming-of-age like coming of age film for her. She's done a lot of coming-of-age stuff. So Petit Maman, it's two girls who are very young, And then she has this great film called Tomboy, which is, I think the person in Tomboy is maybe 10-ish, something in there. The first film I saw of hers came out in 2015, and it's called Girlhood, Bon De Fie. And it's about a black girl that were maybe like 15, you know, high school, experimenting with sex sort of age in the sort of Paris suburbs, which if you don't know what Paris suburb means, that's more... The inner city. Um, The inner city is the outer city in in Paris. So it focuses on this one girl that basically sort of finds this group of friends and it looks at, you know, just sort of slice of life type of film of their time in this sort of experimental phase. They're poor and all the sort of things. so she she's just done really interesting stuff, but it's always with this really delicate touch that I really admire, and I sort of leave her films. They stick with you, definitely,
3: I think. yeah, definitely. That was the case with a portrait of a lady in fire, definitely a film that stuck with me, which is really the case with most of the ones that I'm gonna mention. But yeah. so what are your number three, your next one?
1: I think, my next one is a film I'm surprised at myself that I'm putting on this list, but I just can't escape it in my brain. You know what I mean? Like, I can't say it's a favorite. I don't know. Because I don't, it's a film I don't understand. I, I'll say that. It's a very quirky film. And I don't quite know what the filmmaker is trying to say. And that intrigues me. I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to think, but the film is Morven Collar. It's from 2002. It's by Lynn Ramsey who did, you were never really here, yeah. which came out a couple of years ago. I saw you were never really here. And I really liked that film as much as one can say one really likes that film. It's a very disturbing film. So I saw that and I liked it. And Morphin Collar was one of those films that shows up on the most interesting people's list of female directors. Like, it's not always there. It's not a total classic, but it's definitely sort of a quirky classic, maybe, that people go back to. And I don't want to say too much about it, A, because I don't understand it. <laughs> but because you sort of need to discover it for yourself, but it's got one of the coolest opening i've ever seen to a film and i think that's sort of why it sticks with you because you're destabilized from the very opening of the movie and it's as the sort of credits are starting to come up like the production credits and everything and the title There's a blinking light. It's just like a blinking light. It's like the camera shutter is closing and opening or someone's eyes are closing and opening because it's a blinking light. And you don't quite know what it is, but you just see this girl's face. It's Samantha Morton, who does an incredible performance throughout the movie. And it's sort of on her and you see her sort of stroking, kissing this man that she's lying next to. But again, it's sort of like the light keeps going on and off and it's very slow And you just don't know what's going on. But then it pulls back and you see it's a Christmas tree lights that are blinking on and off. And you see that the other person that is not her is actually dead on the floor with lots of blood around them. And you're just like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, because you've sort of seen her lovingly touching this person who's her boyfriend and like, what's going on? And then it pulls back and you're like, and immediately you don't, you find out very quickly what happened, but like, you don't know right away. It's like, you know, did she kill him? Is this a suicide? Like, you've sort of seen cut risks, but you're just not quite sure what happened. And so it's this very destabilizing beginning. It's a study in grief, but you, it's an incredibly well-crafted film. But like I said, I'm not sure what the intentions were. So I find that really interesting. So it's sort of rewarding to watch again in a way because you sort of, once you know roughly where the story is going, it's sort of like what she does with her life because she goes on with her life. Like the next few scenes are her out at a bar with friends. You don't know what's happened in the apartment. Like, did she tell anyone? She doesn't tell anyone that this has happened is the guy still in the apartment? You don't know. You just see her at a party. You sort of start to see this series of scenes and it's very destabilizing. And then it's, you know, so it's sort of looking at grief and what you do with that and how you reinvent your life, you know, the opportunities you try to take with your life. And it's just, I mean, I just don't want to say more about it, but it's it's incredibly fascinating. And it's like little touches, like it's got great sound design, all that sort of stuff. It's just meticulously crafted. If you don't mind, and I normally hate I hate films that have no plot. You know, I'm a plot whore. I want film to have a tight structure, a tight plot. I want to know where it's going, where it's been. And this is like everything I dislike in a movie. But for some reason, it's magnetic and mesmerizing to me. You know, she goes to Spain with a friend of hers. And so there's a road trip element to it. And it's really interesting what she sort of explores in this movie. And I haven't quite figured it out. I've watched it a couple of times now. And I'm eager to watch it more. I... Did not like this film the first time I saw it I at all. But I felt like I needed to go back to it, and I was very glad I did.
3: I've heard it mentioned a couple of times, and I've seen You Were Never Really Here. I also liked it a lot, but definitely another one that I'm going to check out. Yeah. So my number three is, it, it's actually a, a deep touch. It's from a Palestinian director called Anne-Marie Yasser, and It's called Wajib from 2017. I don't know if I recommended it to you at some point. You, but
1: you did recommend it and I actually looked for it. I could not get it. I tried to watch it. I couldn't,
3: couldn't okay. find it anywhere. I think it was on Prime. But anyway, it follows a father and son played by Mohammed and Saleh Bakri. They're actually father and son in real life. And they spend the day together as they fulfill what they call a wajib, which is a a tradition when their daughter and sister is getting married. So they have to go through different friends' houses, delivering the invitations for the wedding. And that's called a wajib. It's like a tradition in Palestinian families. So the film takes place during that day. And during the day, while they're driving together, many issues and conflicts and regrets and past wounds from their relationship come to the surface and they have to kind of like address them as they spend the day together it's a better simple premise but the actors are great i didn't know they were father and son in real life but you kind of figure it as you see them interact and when i read later that they were actually father and son, it said yeah it figures i also love how jazir the director she's a palestinian director but she didn't rely on any gimmicks or any grandiose political statements about the situation in palestine but through all that's happening, which are simple things and mundane things, but she does pepper a good amount of sociopolitical commentary about what is the situation, even though she's not heavy-handed it to you. But you see it through the conversations and interactions with the characters. And it, it's really a great film, an actor's film, but also a director's film, as you see the handle that she has on the story and what she wants to do. So definitely recommend it.
1: Yeah, like I said, I and I don't know if it's still on Prime, but I don't have Prime, but I will pay to movie if I can. I actually get a lot of movies from the library and if, you know, if they're not on my regular streaming services, because I really don't like to watch things on my computer, so I hate having to resort to YouTube or something like that. <laughs> but no, I did ask you at one point when you set a prompt that was like, ask me anything type of thing or ask me my top three. And I think I said top three films by women, of course. <laughs> um, and that was one of the three you said, so...
3: Yeah, there you
1: go, number three. Yeah, I'm interested to see if... I think one of the other ones maybe might be on your list. Okay. It's on my radar. It's on my to-be-watched list, for sure. And actually, you saying that... (laughs) I'm gonna completely switch my number two. I think because it's sort of I was sort of hesitating between two films. I sort of looked at my threads that I've done through the years on women directors and just sort of to see like which films I recommend the most. And I was like, well, I should probably say one of those. And there were two of them. And so I was actually gonna pick the other one, but now I'm gonna pick this one because it's somewhat related to what you just talked about. And that is Wajda. Um, okay. I think it's 2012. There's often different years on it because I think there was a slow release to the West. September is Women Director Awareness Month. And so in 2015, the reason I started this whole project of watching 52 films by women is there were two different sort of hashtag initiatives to get people to watch more films by women. One was directed by women and one was 52 films by women where you pledge to watch 52 films by women in a year. And uh, they both sort of happened around the same time for whatever reason in September. So as part of the Directed by Women Challenge, it was two weeks of watching films by women. And Watchdough was one of the films, I don't know how I found it, but it was one of the films I watched in that very first two weeks when I started focusing on this. And I just loved it. It's heartwarming and it's sweet. So it's Haifa Al-Mansur, I think, the director. Because I switched it up, Carlos. Um, (laughs) And Wajda is the first film ever filmed entirely in Saudi Arabia. Not the first film by a woman. The first film at all. So just from an important sort of historical film for that reason. And it's a really simple story. It's a girl, you know, a young girl, like a tween girl who is maybe a little bit of a tomboy. She has these sneakers she loves to wear. And of course that's frowned upon because she's in Saudi Arabia and she wants a bike and she wants to ride a bike. You know, there's boys in her neighborhood. There's one boy in particular that she's sort of friends with that he sort of gets the girls don't ride bikes type of thing from. And, you know, the boys are always hanging out on their bikes. And all she wants is just that she sees this bike on a truck. This is a very aspirational sort of story where she sees this bike, like, go by on a flatbed of a truck. And that's, like, all she wants. So there's like a competition at her school, you know, like memorizing Quran verses or something. It's not something she would normally do, but she—it's got prize money, and that's gonna have her get the bike. So she, you know, she puts all her efforts to this. So it's sort of coming-of-age family type of film in that respect, but because of where it takes place and the situation, and that she's a girl there's all these undertones that she doesn't even realize are happening. But, you know, her mother's concerned because, of course, her mother wants her to be a kid and do what makes her happy. But the mother knows what life for women is like and how she's going to have to, you know, she she has very little time left before she's going to have to move to this other phase of her life where she's not going to have these opportunities and this adventure. It's a really lovely film about that sort of struggle. And there's just a lot of layers to what's sort of going on behind the scenes. It's just a film I really appreciated for being on one hand, a lovely heartwarming story. I love sports movies. I don't always love the sports that the movies are about, but I, There's actually a lot of sports movies by women, and they're maybe not the standard sports movies, standard sports that are treated in sports movies like boxing and football and baseball. But there's a number of them. And this is sort of, in a way, a little bit of a sports movie, too. And so I like that element of it. But it's treating very serious issues about the cultural expectations of women in that society. And so it's fascinating for that reason. It's a very entertaining fun watch as well.
3: I'm sure you had recommended it to me, but other people have recommended it. I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list. It's definitely on my radar.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you'd really like it. And like I said, it's yeah. a relatively easy watch, even though it does touch on some tough things.
3: Okay, for my second one, I'm going to go with a documentary. And I'm going to go with Camera Person from 2016. That's from Kirsten Johnson. This is a documentary that uh, Johnson is mostly a cinematographer. And the documentary chronicles 25-year career that she has had working with different directors like Michael Moore and Laura Poitras. And it features footage of her work mixed with personal footage of her family. And I always say it's one of the most emotional pieces of cinema I've seen. There's little dialogue, but it's not needed because the images speak for themselves. Johnson splices these bits and pieces of her work with videos of children, of her family, and the way she does it is so beautiful and so poetic, but I also think it transcends beyond her life and her career into a bigger picture of life around the world and the struggles and challenges of humanity at different levels because you see clips of the frustration of an up-and-coming boxer, the struggles of a family in 90s, post-war Bosnia, a Nigerian newborn trying to breathe, her mother dealing with Alzheimer. And, and, you know, you, you see that the struggles to achieve something, to succeed, to live, to breathe, survive are shared by everyone, are common among all people. And I think it's really beautiful the way she does it. So it's definitely on my top three documentaries and definitely one of my favorite films directed by women.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad to see you pick a documentary because that's certainly one genre, if it's a genre, that women have really excelled in and have been able to have a lot of success in, especially on the festival circuit. I mean, documentaries aren't always big mainstream hits, but there's been a lot of interesting documentaries. I'm actually not a huge fan of documentaries, but I've ended up watching a lot these last few years because it's actually an easy... I mean, there's still tons of movies I have to see by women. I'm not going to run out anytime soon. But it's always an easy bet that, like, if you hear, oh, there's this documentary that's out that's good, it's probably by a woman because a huge proportion of them are. So I have seen Camera Person and I've seen a bunch of other documentaries. And it's definitely a field where I think women have been able to make a mark. And she does very. I haven't seen. Have you seen Dick Johnson is dead? No, no. But
3: I had it recommended by yeah. other people. And...
1: Just very, just very interesting and unusual takes on things. I, I haven't seen any of her other stuff besides Cran Person, but it seems like it's not your typical documentary, I guess.
3: Yeah. So, what's your last one? Your number one?
1: My number one is. Yeah, I think this is what I really wanted to pick a French one. I had a couple in mind, but this is a movie that. When I saw it in the theater, I can't remember what time of year it was, but it was one of those movies where the minute I saw it, I was like, that's my number one film of the year. I can't imagine anything else being number one. And I got to the end of the year, and that was my number one film of the year, which is just something that impressed me right away. And it's a movie called Les Innocents, The Innocents. There's a lot of movies named The Innocents. So it came out in 2016. And it is the second film in my top five, I'm just sort of realizing now, that is Polish and about World War II. It's made by a French director who's been around for a long time, and I've seen a lot of her work years ago when it came out, and... um, Again, wide variety. I would never have pegged her for this type of film. But the story is based on a true story. And it is inspired by a diary that was written by this female doctor who worked for the Red Cross in Poland just after the war. It takes place in December 1945. So the war is sort of over and they're sort of just trying to get back on their feet. The Red Cross is in Poland. You know, they're still wounded to be treated and all these things. So they're on site And a nun comes to the hospital to try to get help, uh, medical help back at the convent because there's a woman that she says is going to die. And so she asks this young doctor for help. And the young doctor's like, you know, whatever. I have other stuff to do. I can't help you. But she sticks around. She's praying, whatever. Lou Delage, who plays the doctor. Lou Delage is French. The nun is Polish she eventually just sort of feel out of guilt was like, okay, I'm going to go with her to this convent and see what's going on. And it turns out that the convent, which is obviously full of nuns was visited by Russian soldiers during the war who raped all the nuns in the convent and about seven of them are now pregnant. And that's why they need help. Because, you know, one woman was having difficulty with the pregnancy and she was dying. And I think, at the point that she brings her to the convent. And this is all in the very opening scenes. And you never, and again, I think this is sort of the directed by women aspect of it, you don't see what happened to these women. You sort of vaguely see, you hear sort of, Flashes of memory of the sort of trauma of it. But it's not about what happened to them and the trauma that happened to them. It's about the ethical question of, you know, they can't be seen. Like the shame of them being pregnant is so large that the mother superior wants to keep everything a secret. So she doesn't want this woman here. She doesn't want to be helped. She doesn't want any doctors. In her mind, they just have to suffer and go get through this. And so there's just a lot of questions about ethics and religion and morality and how you deal with trauma. And you will appreciate this, Carlo. The Mother Superior is played by the woman in Ida, Agata Agata Kulesza, who's the aunt in Ida. She plays the Mother Superior. And there's a whole range of incredible Polish actresses that play the nuns. And Lou Delage is a sort of favorite French actress of mine. She plays the young doctor. And it's just really this incredible story about how these women are like struggling to deal with their faith in the wake of what has happened to them and what is still happening to them and what they feel they have to deal with. And there's almost a complete absence of men. There are other doctors she deals with. At one point, she gets accosted because she's going back and forth to this comment to try to treat them secretly And, you know, she gets accosted by Russian soldiers at one point who are still in the area. And so it's just the whole thing takes place in December. It's winter. And so you have all these just beautiful shots of like nuns in black and white walking through snowy woods. And, you know, it's just gorgeously shot. It's like a Fincher film in that everything is gray and blue (laughs) and like sort of in that cool tones aspect. But it's not cold, if that's possible. I don't know. It's very, it's just shot beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. I can't, actually, I don't know who the cinematographer was, but it's shot very beautifully. It's a beautiful film to look at. Lots of every frame is a picture type of thing.
3: You know, to extend the connections, I'm reading the cast and one of the actresses wanted to play Sister Maria. She was in High Life. Oh, uh, really? yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Another another sister, Joanna Cooley, was the lead in Cold War and was was, uh, in in Ida. So uh, it's all connected.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's sort of actually unrecognizable because, you know, they're full-on nuns with the, you know, like you only see their face, really. You don't see their hair or anything. So yeah. Yeah, she's the one that goes to ask for help in the beginning. Uh, okay. She's one of the non-pregnant ones that, that <laughs> is the one that goes for help. And, you know, she has to sneak out. Like, she sneaks out to go yeah. ask for help. And So, yeah, it's just a really
3: great movie. Yeah, it definitely sounds like something that... Actually, all of the ones that you mentioned sound really interesting. That are definitely going to watch list. So let's see which one I get to first. <laughs> uh, so for my number one, I've talked about this movie before, so I'm going with a Swedish film, and it's called Aniara. It. <laughs> from 2018, that's directed by Pelle Kagerman and Hugo Lilja. co-directors. And I've talked about this film. I don't remember what episode, but I've talked about it several times. It's set in a dystopian future where Earth has become inhabitable and Aniata is a ship that transports people from Earth to Mars. And when space debris steers the ship, of course, the passengers and the crew have to adjust to the possibility of living their lives adrift in space. I love this film. I, I really, really loved it. Not only is it well acted and crafted, I think the production values are not high, but the directors are very economical in how they use it and how they shot the film. But I love how the script handles these themes of isolation, existentialism, religion, depression, admirably. It's a film that really stuck with me and the more I think of it, the more I love it. There is a focus on a character, which is called the MR, which is more her position rather than her name. She works at this sort of spa where passengers go to have visions of the earth to seek like this refuge or this bomb from this artificial place where they're living but what really left a mark with me was this there's this atmosphere this haunting atmosphere this eeriness as everything gets bleaker and bleaker as you see that like i said they're probably gonna spend their entire life lost in space and how every passenger they turn to numerous sources and numerous things in the search for reassurance, for comfort. Some people resort to reading, other people resort to orgies, other people resort to eating or romance or different things, trying to look for that hope, that meaning. Actually, Anyara means despair. So there's this despair in all the. Every passenger, every every crew member, and how they cling to different things in, in that search for hope. I thought it was impressive. It's a film that has really stuck with me. I've seen it a couple of times already, and, and I think I love it more now than the first time I saw it. So that would be my number one.
1: It's a really good film. I am not a sci-fi person, as I said before.
3: Yeah, but <laughs> and um, I had to sci-fi.
2: <laughs> and it,
1: well, and it's funny because it, it they it's sort of similar to High Life in many ways, right? But. It's such a totally different tone in other ways. Yeah. Um, and it's so bleak, but it poses such interesting questions that get you thinking. It's, I mean, I think when I find, cause you recommended it, it was on your list of three, as I said, yeah. you had three films and um, <laughs> one. I couldn't They were actually my one,
3: one to three. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, so I'm, I'm glad to see you were very consistent. So I, you know, I watched it after you had said that because it, it did look interesting. And I was like, okay, it's, I thought it was sci-fi. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll try it. But I, I really enjoyed it. It explores really interesting themes. And actually, there's sort of polar opposites in terms of the plot and topics. But it's very much like the Innocence. I mean, there's a lot of the similar themes. Because part of what's weighing over the whole pregnant nun question in the Innocence is Poland's now communist. And they don't know what's going to happen to the church, and they don't know what's going to happen to their convent. And they didn't like having the Nazis around. And it's sort of unclear whether the Nazis maybe also did something to them, but the Russians certainly did. And they don't really know how they're going to be treated by the sort of incoming, expected to be socialist, communist government in Poland. Like, they don't know what their future is. So besides their own personal futures, which they're all sort of dealing with differently in terms of being pregnant, because... Although I have realized rewatching so many of these films that a lot of them have abortion somewhere in it. And this like abortion is not a question, but you do have to wrestle with the fact that you're pregnant and you're going to have a baby and what is going to happen to that baby and who's going to find out about it and all those sort of things. But yeah, I mean, there's a similar sort of it's not quite bleakness, but it's it's a despair when you just don't know what the future is going to bring. And you have the sort of ongoing situation where you don't know the future is going to be, And then you have like these personal issues that happen. And you see that with Anyara, like, you know, you sort of see the different traumas that people have gone through in their lives. But yeah, I mean, it's a, God, it's so bleak. But I think when I watched it, I tweeted like, this is really good. It's really bleak. Yeah. But it's really good.
3: <laughs> yeah. Again, like I said, I really loved it. It's, I don't know. I tend to like bleak films. So I don't know. It stuck with me.
1: Yeah. Definitely any sci fi fan should watch it. It's...
3: Yeah. So it's great. I really love your list. There are a lot of those films that, like I said, piqued my interest. And I'm definitely going to try to check it out, especially those two that your bookends The Innocence and Last, Last Stage. Last Stage.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And those two are the ones that actually I'm kind of more curious about. So I'm yeah. definitely going to check them out. So we're over two hours. So I'm going to push through our last part. <laughs> oh, my God. No, as usual, I went and asked on Twitter for people to share their favorite films directed by women. And I got a lot of responses. So brace yourself. set so I power through this. <laughs> My friend Kerem, uh, K. Maliki Sanchez, he said Holy Smoke by Jane Campion. Strange Days by Catherine Bigelow, which we mentioned briefly. And Tigers Are Not Afraid by Isa Lopez.
1: Oh, I've heard really good things about that last one. I haven't seen it, but it comes up a lot.
3: Yeah, Peter Loves Movies at Peter in London, UK. He said, uh, you Get Got Mail by Nora Ephron, A League of Their Own, Penny Marshall, Yentl by Barbara Streisand, The Watermelon Woman by Cheryl Dunya. I saw that one a while ago. It's I, really interesting.
1: I really need to see that one. It's definitely one of my gaps.
3: But it's not great. I didn't think it was great, but it's really interesting and worth a watch, definitely. Wow. My friend Darren Lumberg from Nostalgia Gas, he said, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed by, uh, I don't know how to say his name. Oh, Lottie L- Reininger. Lori Reininger, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Babadook by uh, Jennifer Kent, which came up in a lot of lists. Cleo from 5 to 7 from Agnes Barda. The Metrics from the Wachowskis and The mm-hmm. Piano by Jane Campion, which also came a lot in this list. My friend Andres from the Latin Jukebox, he said, one of the latest ones I watched is The Power of the Dog from Jane Campion.
1: Oh, by the way, Carlo, have you seen The Adventures of Prince Ahmed?
3: No, but when Darren brought it up, I looked a bit further and I saw what it was. And I thought, you know, what? I kind of have to see this.
1: Yeah, I think you would really like it. It's beautiful animation. It's from the 20s. Yes. It's gorgeous.
3: Uh, Rafi Mediavilla at R. Media Villa is said, Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennell. Zero Duck 30 from Catherine Bigelow with Jessica Chastain's best performance in my book, American Psycho from Mary Harron.
1: That's a big gap of mine, too. Uh, I've cool. been putting it off, but I think this Halloween is finally.
3: American Cycle? You haven't seen it?
1: I haven't seen Well, you know, oh. I read the book years ago, and it's so oh, disturbing gee. that. Yeah. And I'm not a horror person generally. Yeah. So I just sort of didn't watch it. And I know I'll actually probably really like it, but I think I'm going to tackle that this October. I, I do a, like a fortnight of fright um, okay. horror thing, so.
3: Kevin at Kevin underscored critic, he said uh, Love and Basketball by Tina Prince Blythewood, The Parent Trap by Nancy Mayers, Herbie Fully Loaded by Angela Robinson, yeah. Clueless from Amy Heckerling and The Babadoo from yeah, Jennifer I mean-
1: Kent. I love Clueless. Clueless is, if I was doing a literal top five, like my top five favorite films, Clueless would be on there for sure.
3: Clueless, I need to rewatch. When I did a rom-com loot, my guest uh, Rachel, she brought it up on her top five, and I said, you know, I saw this film in theaters when I was a teen with a group of friends, and I don't think we were, maybe, I don't want to say we were in the audience, but Maybe we weren't ready for that film and we didn't like it, but I've seen it come up in so many lists of great films that I thought, you know, I really need to see this with with different eyes as I saw it when I was 15 or something like that. So definitely want to rewatch. Melody Owen at Diesel Press, she said Sweetie by Jane Campion.
1: Oh, I love Sweetie is my favorite Jane Campion,
3: I think. It's her first one. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Justin at Kundalini Hand 73 he said, the recent death of Agnes Barda compelled me to finally deep into her filmography, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. I particularly love One Sings the Other Doesn't, her wonderful examination of female friendship and the women's liberation movement in 60s, 70s France. I'm also loving the skin crawling provocations of Julia Ducourno in Raw and Titan. And Anna <laughs> I like Lili-
1: Titan. Titan was good.
3: Yeah, I, I need to see it. I'm definitely curious about it. But he also said, Lily Amerpour or strikingly gorgeous vampire flick neo-Western French new wave homage indie romance, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night.
1: Yeah, that Uh, I would definitely, that was definitely in contention for my top five. I just rewatched, that was one of those films, again, I saw in theater and it was blown away by, and I only rewatched it just this past month because I was rewatching a bunch of stuff to sort of think about whether they should be in my top five. And I was just amazed at how well that held up for me. And it's got a really kick-ass soundtrack. If you like the new wave at all, if you like Iranian vampire westerns, it's a niche <laughs> category. But, if you, no, but what,
3: seriously, what we were, it's so good. What we were talking about, so genre-ass uh, mashups.
1: Yeah, there you go.
3: Uh, we Need a Rhodes podcast at Need a Rose. They said Wayne's World from Penelope's of a film I haven't seen, which is weird considering, well, my age at the time it came out. But no, I haven't seen it.
1: I saw it when it came out, but um, not <laughs> I mean, I remember liking it. Uh,
3: Paul at Paul and Nicola, he said. Gene Dillman from Chantal Ackerman. Cleo from Fight to Seven from Agnes Varda. And The Piano from Jean Campion.
1: Oh, so all the classics right there.
3: Movie Man Madness at Manny Movie Mad. He said Return to Me from Bonnie Hunt. McFarland USA from Nikki Caro. The Nativity Story from Catherine mm-hmm. Hardwick. Nomad Land from Chloe Shao. And Coda from CN Heather.
1: That's a very interesting list return to me is one of those movies i forgot was directed by like i've liked and i've watched multiple times but i didn't sort of realize it was by a woman and McFarlane usa is another one i would recommend to many people it's a sports film um, okay. about runners like a team of male high school runners okay um, and it stars um kevin costner as their coach okay yeah it's, okay. it's very good very well done
3: Tim Doherty said, my favorite, and especially if you base it on number of rewatches, would be Heckerling's Fast Times at Richmond High (laughs) or Heron's American Psycho. At the moment, I'm curious to see what Julia Ducurna does next. Raw and Teton. My friends at Defining Disney Podcast yeah. said, sticking completely to our stick, Frozen <laughs> and Frozen 2, directed by the only female director present in the Walt Disney Animated Studio canon, is Jennifer Lee. Which I thought was, I, I was shocked that she was the only one I mean, in so many years, the only yeah. female director. Sadly,
1: I'm not shocked. One of the reasons I started this whole project in 2015 was that was when Inside Out came out. And I did a whole review of Pixar's filmography and was very, especially from a feminist perspective and a Bechtel test perspective. And I was mm. very disappointed by what I found. And, you know, for the most part, especially with Pixar, these are cartoon characters that don't even have to be gendered. And yet.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, Johnny Bishop, uh, Joe Liu Biss, real genius from Marta Coolish. Oh,
2: that's fun.
3: My friend Ken at InterCandy said, This is a toss up between The Matrix and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'll say The Matrix wins on the technicality of having two women directors instead of just one. After all these years, after nearly being worn out by the pop culture combine, it still stands as a great movie.
1: Yeah, I agree I'm, with that. Definitely. I'm not agree a fan of
3: that. The Matrix.
1: <laughs> I can totally see not being a fan of it, but I am sort of surprised. I rewatched them all when the fourth one came out, and um, I was like, God, this really does. The first one really does still hold up, you know a tight movie. That's an interesting combination, because Portrait of Lady on Fire was the other one? Uh, yes. <laughs> interesting combination.
3: Of- David Franco at Water Padu. He said Morbent Collar by Lynn Ramsey. Oh, yay. You mention, yeah. Got it. Force 5 podcast. They say, Here's a blast from the past episode when Rosa from Latinx Lens and I talked about 10 awesome films directed by women. And they linked their podcast. I didn't listen to it, but I'm going to listen to it. My friend Tyler at A Film Addict said, To not bog you down with a ton of suggestions, I'll just say that I haven't really stopped thinking about Barda's film, Le Bonheur. Did I say it well? Oh, Le Bonheur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Le, Le, Bonheur.
1: Le, Bonheur. Le Bonheur. I haven't Since seen haven't,
3: that. Uh, yeah. Since having haven't seen it earlier this year. Such a subtle, poignant, and quietly upsetting film. A beautiful. Nightmare,
1: yeah. I just have Um, to say that my boyfriend is far better versed in Varda than me, to my eternal shame.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Sussed a bat at G Money G said Namaland for sure, especially the grief team. Kenny Diaz at Kenny Diaz PR said, We need to talk about Kevin from Lynn Ramsey, Things to Come from Mia Hansen Love, Killing Jesus from Laura Mora, Cabernet from Nadine Lavaki, and Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I didn't write who this was from.
1: Um, that's Maria Heller, who I yeah. highly, she's done great work.
3: Jose at Jose Omar underscore 18, he said, The Power of the Dog, directed by Jane Campion. Dan of Green Gables had stand, Stand Dan said Portrait of a Lady on Fire from Siama. The Souvenir from Joanna Hogg. Lingua Franca from Isabel Sandoval. The Bigamist from Ida Lupino. The Trouble with Angels from Ida Lupino. Mikey and Nikki from Elaine May. This is, this is where I, I had heard of. And Girl Fight and Jennifer's Body from Karin Kusama.
1: Kafkaesque has done a lot of interesting stuff.
3: Yeah, I haven't seen any of these, but I had the invitation around my potential ones because I really dug that one.
1: That's one of those great endings, too. Yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting. Yeah.
3: yeah, in Film with Trust podcast at IFWT Pod, they said Girlfriends by Claudia Wheel and on some classic from 1978, also one of Kubrick's favorite films of all time, one I yeah. hadn't even heard of.
1: Oh, that actually almost made my list. I was hesitating between that and a Nicole Holliff Center film, which is very similar and um... You know, I wanted to go with the 70s one, but I ended up choosing Mikey and Nikki. But Girlfriends is a sort of an all-time classic. But I think if people have focused on women directors, they definitely have seen that one. It's, it's okay. really good. I mean, it's just two friends dealing with one getting married and moving out of the apartment type of thing. I definitely recommend that.
3: And uh, finally, the Cultworthy podcast. at uh, The cult-worthy. don't hate me, but my favorite is Tang Girl, Rachel Talalay <laughs> Rules. There are so many more, but this sings to my soul.
1: I hate him. Or her. I
3: haven't seen it. (laughs) So, Sylvie, before we close, is there any other film you want to mention?
1: Well, you know, I got to mention so many. I feel like I've taken a lot of cheating. I mean, people came up with really good ones. I definitely would probably second most of the films that people have said. The one thing I think, you know, besides Girlfriends and the Nicole Center film that's like Girlfriends is called Walking and Talking. So if you liked Enough Said, you know, then I would definitely recommend that. It's sort of a great, not quite a hangout film, but it's definitely one of those more like slice of life. You're you're like in your 20s going through changes type of thing that I would definitely recommend. Like I thought, I mean, I could probably name like 20 films. I absolutely (laughs) Absolutely are in my top five, but if people aren't letterboxed, as you know, Carlo, I prepared a bunch of lists Oh yeah. So I made one that's 150 favorites. That's just my personal favorites. But I made one that's 150 essentials. And what I wanted to signal about that list is within that list, I have a link to another list that someone has been trying to compile all the female directed films on
3: Letterboxd. And that's like an
1: 8,000 film list. And we didn't really touch on this. But you know, one of the biggest problems with wanting to watch more by female directors is it's hard to figure out what's by a female director. It's not a genre you can sort of filter on in Letterbox. So if you want to even get an idea of what films you've seen by women, if you go to my list, you can get a link to. And Carla, you can maybe put the link to the big list as well. And you can just at least filter that and see like what have I seen on this 8,000 film list? Because even I have found surprises like films I forgot were by women, or you know I like them and I just was like, oh yeah, that's by a woman. I think it's hard to come up with films by women sometimes if people ask you your favorites, but I think everyone out there has probably seen more than they realize.
3: Yeah, definitely. I, I want to mention just, I think, three. I think they're all foreign, so I think they would be interesting choices. One is Mustang from Turkey from Denise gamze Erguman. Yeah. Send Dollars yeah. uh, from Dominican Republic, Laura Amelia Guzman. Shane from Jennifer Lynch, that's David's daughter. And uh, that one. yeah, uh, stars Vincent D'Onofrio as a sort of serial killer that kidnaps a kid. This happens in the opening after he murders his mother and he kidnaps the kid and he sort of takes him under his wing. And uh, then the kid becomes a teenager and it's the dynamic between them both, him, uh, a serial killer murderer and a kidnapped kid that has lived pretty much his entire life chained to a bed. So huh. it's a really, really interesting film. And the last one I want to mention is La Cienaga from Lucrecia Martel. That's from Argentina. And it's uh, another really interesting one.
1: Yeah, I've only seen one of her films. But I saw Zama, which is sort of a period film about Spanish colonizers. And I really didn't like it. But I do want to see films of hers. It sounds like I would like them based on the description, but I just haven't prioritized them.
3: No, definitely a a lot to choose from both our list and from the list of everybody that that shares something. So thanks to everybody. I try to edit (laughs) the list because a lot of people just put like 10 or, or 12 films. So Sylvie, why don't you tell us what are your plans for the near future? What are you working on right now?
1: Well, I'm still stuck in the 40s for this century plus project where I'm going through the decades. So I've posted about the 1900s, the 10s, the 20s, and the 30s. I'm almost done with the 40s. I've watched most of what I plan to watch, but I sort of wanted to shift focus, especially to these films. That was a project I initially started in 2020 with the idea of doing one decade a month, which was, granted, a ridiculous plan that was never going to happen. But then the pandemic happened. So I'm finally at a point where I'm like, you know what, the decades are going to come when the decades Come. So, mostly what I'm just trying to do is fill in gaps with all these great films that I haven't seen over the years by focusing on decades and really trying to explore like the best of the decades and come up with some sort of essentials list overall for the history of cinema that's, you know, not just the same films that are in the regular canon and maybe a little bit more diverse. I'm looking forward to November coming up. That's something I usually focus on. I always try to get my 52 films by women done by October because November happens and there are very few classic noir directors. That are women, so I usually have to have my films. And surprisingly, I watch a lot of holiday films during December, and very few female filmmakers there as well. So yeah, I'm just plugging away on my uh, Century Plus project. That's probably going to go on for the next year or two. But it's been a really great way to discover, especially the female directors, because when you're looking in places like the 40s, like I never would have seen The Last Stage, for example, if I hadn't been doing my Century Plus project, because I was looking for you know anything desperately that had been filmed by a woman in the 40s, and so I. Watched Watched it, but that's the type of thing that's been so great to discover about that project. Yeah. I'll be on Twitter. I'll be giving you way more suggestions. I'm one of those people that says, you know, I always have 10 favorites for whatever you're asking about.
3: So, <laughs> no, and speaking of Twitter, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Yeah, uh, at Twitter, I am at sly underscore wit. Sylvie. On Letterboxd, I am just Sylvie. Surprisingly, I managed to snag that one. And my blog is on WordPress, and it's slywit.wordpress.com, which I have not been great about blogging lately, but that is where I'm blogging my Century Plus project. So you can see that. And you can see I probably have three or four lists about female filmmakers in my Letterboxd list. So... Uh, If you're
3: looking for ideas, check those out. I definitely recommend everyone to check out your blog and to follow you on Twitter. If you want insightful conversations and great recommendations and just a great person to chat with, then definitely follow Sylvie. It has been an absolute pleasure. I really want to thank you for coming on the show and having this great conversation with me and and with our looters. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Harlow. It's been great.
3: Definitely. We have to do it again at some point. (laughs)
1: yeah hopefully when you haven't had been out of power for days and days and days
3: (laughs) definitely definitely so thank you so much take care
1: thanks carla great talking with you
3: same bye bye So that was it for our Women's Loot. Thanks so much to Sylvie for her time and the great conversation. Make sure you follow her on Twitter and check out the episode description for the link to her website. It's definitely worth it. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and we hope that it can serve as an incentive to check out more films directed by women because there's a lot of great stuff. If you do check something that we talk about, let us know. You can contact us via Twitter at TMML2021 or me personally at TiffCGT. Also, remember to keep listening to us on every podcasting platform. If that platform allows you to drop a review or give us a rating, please do so. That only helps us reach more people. Also, make sure you check out our coffee page, which you can find in our Twitter bio via our link tree, and help us with a little bit more than listening. We will be eternally grateful. So, with that said, they say that behind every man, there's a great woman. But if there's one thing I'm sure of, it's that behind every great film, there's surely one or more great women. So, go check them out. See ya.
2: I love directing because it's a deep dive into story. Yet the task of manifesting a world can be overwhelming. The sweet thing
1: is, I'm not alone.
0: This really is, um, there's no other way to describe it. It's the moment of a lifetime. So, so extraordinary to be in the company of such power, my fellow nominees, such powerful filmmakers who have inspired me and I have admired for some of whom for decades. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately of how I keep going when uh, when things get hard. And I think even though sometimes it might seem like the opposite is true, but I have always found goodness in the people I met everywhere I went in the world. So this is for anyone who has the faith and the courage to hold on to the goodness in themselves and to hold on to the goodness in each other, no matter how difficult it is to do that. And this is for you. You inspire me to keep going. Thank you.